0: Again, to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And we come this morning to Mark chapter 11, and I will read verses 1 to 11 of chapter 11. Mark 11, 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage, and let me just pause there. I didn't know how to pronounce that word. And so I looked at a dictionary and they said, Bethphagy. And then I looked at another dictionary, they said Bethphagy. And then I looked at another dictionary, they said Bethphage. So I still don't know how to pronounce it, but we're going to call it Bethphage, okay? I have to choose something. So as they appro- approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples And he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming King, kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. As we come to this place in Mark's narrative, we come to a very momentous event and a significant turning point in the ministry of Jesus. And I want you to note the contrast between the way that Jesus presents himself here and the way he has presented himself throughout his ministry. You will remember that Jesus often retreated from public acclaim. Now, he didn't avoid the masses. He mingled with the masses. He taught the people. He healed the people. He fed the people. But whenever there was a groundswell of popular enthusiasm to make him king, what did Jesus do? He steadfastly resisted that and he withdrew. He quenched every fire of misguided messianic zeal in the masses. He foiled every public attempt to crown him as king in Israel. Sometimes he would heal a person and then he would say, don't tell anybody else. Remember that? Not only that, but up until this time, he had sidestepped every effort of his enemies to do him harm. In his hometown of Nazareth, he gave a sermon. And in that sermon, he made a couple of Gentiles out to be the heroes. Oh, he was bursting the bubble of their nationalistic pride. And they got so angry at him, they tried to throw him off a cliff. But we read, but passing through their midst, he went his way. It wasn't the time for him to be thrown off a cliff. It wasn't ever the time for that. In John chapter 8, angry Jewish leaders picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy, and we read, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. At other times, when it got too hot in one place, he would change locations and move to another. So up until this point, Jesus' pattern has been to shun the efforts of the adoring masses to exalt him and make him an earthly king. And up until this point, he has frustrated the efforts of his raging enemies to do him in. But now there's a clear shift in his ministry. Now he is coming in, riding on a donkey, seeming to invite public acclaim of the masses. He's no longer concealing himself, but he is revealing himself. And far from running and hiding from his enemies, he's walking right into their open jaws. He's running, he's riding right into the headquarters of the enemies that were plotting his death, namely Jerusalem. Why the change? Why the shift? I think the answer is quite clear. The Lord's earthly ministry is drawing to a close. He has less than a week to live on planet Earth. There's no longer any real danger of him being made an earthly king. And he is putting himself within reach of his enemies who will soon capture him, bring him to trial, falsely accuse him, mock him, spit on him, turn him over to the Romans who will scourge him nearly to the point of death and kill him on a Roman cross. You see, the the true nature of his messianic mission is about to be revealed. This event by which Jesus comes into Jerusalem to the resounding cheers of an adoring multitude, but also comes into the waiting hands of his bloodthirsty enemies, we call this the triumphal entry. In some Christian circles, this is known as Palm Sunday for reasons we will shortly see. From now on, in the gospel, all the activities of our Lord will center in and around the city of Jerusalem. Now, the first thing I want us to see from this passage is the location of Jesus before he comes into Jerusalem. Verse 1, as they approach Jerusalem at Bethphage, as we'll call it, and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. These two villages factor somewhat significantly in Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Bethany was the place where Jesus, after crossing the Jordan from Korea, he comes into Bethany and there he works one of his most stupendous miracles. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Here's a man who has been dead for four days. People are concerned that he is already stinking if you open up the tomb. And Jesus... By his creative, life-giving power, says Lazarus, come forth, and a dead man rises to life. Quite an amazing miracle. Well, a little later on, and six days before Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the sister of Lazarus, Martha, hosts a party for Jesus, and Lazarus is there. And this draws a multitude of curiosity seekers. They want to see the man who was dead and is now alive they want to see the man the person who raised him from the dead wouldn't you wouldn't you i mean we hear of these ideas from crazy circles of people who have been raised from the dead and we know not to believe them but if if there was credible evidence that there was a man who was dead and he'd been raised and the one who did it was there wouldn't you want to get an invitation to that party it's natural what does that have to do with the entrance into jerusalem well it appears that Those curiosity seekers who had come to Bethany to see Lazarus and to see Jesus were among those who followed him the two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem and therefore were part of this crowd acclaiming him in the triumphal entry. As for this city or village of Bethphage, that appears to be the place where they get the donkey on which Jesus rides. Consider now the revelation of Jesus in his entry. What does this entrance into Jerusalem by Jesus tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let me just review the narrative. Uh, He chooses two of his disciples out of the 12. We don't know which two. He tells them where to go. Go into the village opposite you, presumably Bethphage. He tells them what they will find when they get there. You'll find a colt tied there. Matthew actually is more explicit. It says you'll find a donkey and a colt with her, the foal of the donkey. Uh, The colt is not a horse, it is a a donkey. Uh, He tells them something about the colt. It is one on which no one yet has ever sat. He tells them what um, to do, untie it and bring it here. He tells them the dialogue to anticipate. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? In other words, they can expect that somebody's going to question them, and he tells them how to respond, tell them the Lord has need of it, and he assures them of the outcome, that immediately he will send it back here. So Jesus gives very precise directions to his disciples, and we see the prompt execution of Jesus' commands by the disciples. They do exactly what Jesus said. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. Now, on the surface, this may seem to be a rather simple and straightforward account that's not very significant. But I want to show you that this account is really very rich in revealing the person and work of Jesus Christ. First we should note that this account is given in all four gospels. That's significant. When God has repetition there's there's some significance to that. Second, the narrative is explicit in its detail, isn't it? The process is described with great specificity. And remember, God doesn't waste words in his Bible. If there's specific details, it's for a purpose. I want you to see first that there's a revelation of the supernaturalness of Jesus' person here. How was Jesus able to tell them in detail exactly what they will find, exactly the dialogue that will take place? Now, one could say he made pre-arrangement with the owners of the donkey. That's certainly a possibility. But commentators such as William Hendrickson, J.C. Ryle, Matthew Henry, rather believe that Jesus gleaned this information because of his supernatural power. And it would not be the first time that Jesus used his divine supernatural knowledge. Remember at one point when he told Peter that we need to pay the tax to Caesar? Where are you going to get the money to find the tax? Well, Peter, cast your line in the water. So they didn't only fish with nets. I guess they did have fishing poles. And he said, cast your hook in the water and in the mouth of the first fish you catch, there will be what? A stater, a shekel. Pay the tax. How did Jesus know that? Well, he ordained that. Uh, remember when he saw Nathaniel sitting under a tree and he must have read his thoughts because Nathanael said, how do you know me? Well, I saw you sitting under a tree and this surely must be the son of God. He knew exactly what he would face in Jerusalem. On three separate occasions, he told his disciples, even though they, did, they didn't get it, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and suffer under the, at the hands of the chief priests and elders, and they're going to mock me and spit at me, and they're going to scourge me and kill me. How did he know that was going to happen? Well, it was his divine omniscience. Jesus is fully a man, but at times his divine person shines through his humanity, and this appears to be one of those cases. So there's a revelation of the supernaturalness of Jesus' person. There's a revelation of the sacredness of Jesus' mission. And here there is a detail that could easily go unnoticed. In describing the cult, it is said in verse 2, it is one on which no one yet has ever sat. Why is that detail included? Why was it mentioned that it was an unbroken cult? It was an unused cult. No one had yet sat on that until Jesus did. There seems to be a pattern in the scriptures that I want to call your attention to. And I want to refer to several verses in the Old Testament. You need not turn there because I'll pass quickly by them. But in Numbers 19.2, And the context is not terribly important, but it reads like this. This is the statute of the law, which the Lord has commanded saying, speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer notice in which is no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. One of the animals used in sacrifice to God was a heifer. And what kind of heifer? a heifer on which no yoke has ever been placed. Deuteronomy 21 in verse 3, we have a situation where a man is murdered out in the countryside. The city nearest that place has some responsibility and possible culpability for the man that was murdered in close proximity. And so we read this in Deuteronomy 21.3, It shall be that the city which is nearest to the slain man, that is, the elders of that city, shall take a heifer of the herd, which has not been worked, and which has not pulled in a yoke. Interesting. As in Numbers, a heifer has not been used. No yoke has been put on. Why? Because these heifers are reserved for a sacred purpose. It has not been used for common use. In 1 Samuel 6, you will remember that on one occasion, the Philistines defeated the Israelites and they stole the Ark of God. And they put it in the, idol of the, in the temple of their idol, Dagon. It did not go well for Dagon. <laughs> They'd wake up and his head was off, his hands were off. God is a jealous God and he hates idolatry. And the Philistines concluded, we need to get this thing out of here before something worse happens. And so they call for their priests and their priests apparently familiar with something of Judaism. We read this in 1 Samuel 6, 7. Now therefore take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never been a yoke and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Why the mention that there are cows on which there has never been a yoke? Because these cows were going to be used for a sacred purpose. They were going to transport the ark of God, which was a symbol of God's presence with his people. Heifer, unused. Cows, unused. Why? Because they are reserved for a sacred purpose. You think about the virgin birth of Jesus why the virgin birth. Jesus was born in a womb that had not borne any children. It was, we might say, an unused womb, because the womb of Mary was reserved for a sacred purpose. It would harbor the incarnate Son of God. And think of the tomb in which Jesus was buried, an interesting detail says in Luke 23, 53, a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. Why that detail? It was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was an unused tomb, an unused womb previously, an unused tomb. Why? Because they were reserved for a sacred purpose. The son of God would be born and housed in that womb. The son of God would be laid in that tomb. And so this little detail of this, un- this cult being unused points to the sacred use that would be made of it. It would be used to carry the king of kings on a sacred mission. Further, how do we know that the mission of Jesus revealed in his coming into Jerusalem was a sacred mission? According to Matthew, it was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew 21, 4 and 5 reads like this. I don't often dip into the other Gospels because we're studying Mark, but in this case, I want to do that. Matthew 21, 4 and 5 tells us this telling the same story about his entrance into Jerusalem. And then it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That's taken from Zechariah 9.9. Turn with me for a few minutes to the next-to-last book in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Zechariah. And I want to show you for just a few minutes that this prophecy of Zechariah is filled with predictions about the Messiah, Jesus. Zechariah wrote after the Babylonian captivity, during the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, and I want you to note some of the prophecies, some of which you will recognize, about the coming Messiah. In Zechariah 13 and verse 1, listen to these words. In that day, some future eschatological day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity or uncleanness. What is that fountain that will be opened for sin and impurity? It's the blood of Jesus. In Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 12 and 13, we read, other prophecies. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is branch, where he will branch out where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor. He will he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. This one who will build the temple is going to be a priest and a king. In the Old Testament, if a man was a king, he wasn't a priest. In fact, when one king tried to act like a priest, he got leprosy. You're either a king or a priest, but not both. But this future person is going to be a priest and a king. In Zechariah 11, 12, and 13, listen to this prediction made 500 years before Jesus set foot on planet Earth. Zechariah 11, 12, and 13 reads like this. You will recognize it. I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Sound familiar? Perfectly fulfilled by Jesus. In Zechariah 12, 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Who is it that who will be pierced? It is clearly Jesus. And for our purposes, Zechariah 9, 9, Reads, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey was a sacred mission because it was prophesied in the Old Testament and he was fulfilling that prophecy. It is no ordinary donkey. It is set aside for sacred use. It will carry the Messiah through the gates of Jerusalem who will carry out the crowning act of his messianic mission to die for his people. What is that mission? Thirdly, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, not only a revelation of the supernaturalness of his person, the sacredness of his mission, but it's the revelation of the spiritual nature of Jesus' kingdom. As you know, and as we'll see in another sermon, the praise and adulation these people give him is very shallow and will be short-lived, right? A few days later, the same ones who are adoring him and and praising him, Hosanna, are going to cry out what? Crucify him, crucify him. The people, you see, were expecting a political deliverer, a political Messiah. They had seen his miracles and they thought, Man, we want to be delivered from heathen Roman rule, a man who could raise a man from the dead, a man who could feed 5,000 with a few loaves and fish. Imagine what he can do to the Romans. And they were looking for a political deliverer, much like our Ukrainian friends are now. They're an oppressed, opposed people. A greater nation is coming upon them, and they're crying out for help, aren't they? Send us more Stinger missiles. Send us some MiGs from Poland. Create a no-fly zone. We're willing to fight, but we need help. We're oppressed. We're we're being overrun. Well, the Jews, maybe not in such a noble way, but they, they wanted deliverance from the rule of Rome, these heathens. But they grossly misconceived the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus did not come to bring an earthly kingdom. He didn't come to bring a political kingdom. And why should they have known that? They should have known it because of the way he rode into Jerusalem. On the one hand, people did not ride into Jerusalem. I read that the final leg of that journey was always on foot. So for Jesus to ride um, was significant. He was calling attention to himself. There was something royal, something noble about him riding. People didn't ride, and he's riding. Who is this one? There's something noble, something royal about him riding into Jerusalem. On the other hand, what is he riding on? A donkey. Now, we read in the Judges that before the introduction of horses to Palestine, you read about sons and grandsons of judges riding on donkeys. But in Solomon's day, they introduced horses. Horses are a more majestic animal than donkeys, aren't they? And from then on, the kings rode not on donkeys, but on horses. So Jesus is riding in. There's something noble and royal about that. Everybody else is walking, but he's riding on a donkey. He is not prancing in with, on a high-spirited, snorting stallion. He's loping humbly on a donkey. Like dum-de-dum-de-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. When you see a donkey, that's what you think of, not a mighty stallion snorting and rising up. He's riding in something royal, something dignified about that, but he's riding a donkey. Speaks humility and lowliness. They should have known by that that Jesus was a king, but he's not the kind of king that's going to come and crush the Romans. He's a king who's bringing in a different kingdom. And the very prophecy of Zechariah 9 should have told them that. Right after talking about the fact that your king is coming to you, just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey, the very next verse says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. They should have known from the rest of that prophecy that this king was coming not to bring war, but to bring peace. Even as throughout the prophecies of Isaiah, he is said to bring peace. What kind of peace? Well, we know peace between man and God as he will bear our sins in his body on the tree. But notice, thirdly, the celebration of the crowd upon Jesus' entry. Who made up the crowd? Well, there were two groups, we are told. Back to our text in in Mark, there were two groups in verse 9. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting Hosanna. Those who followed were those who were in Bethany and had been drawn to the house of Martha, and they saw Lazarus, and they were impressed with Jesus, and they said, wow, anybody who can raise somebody from the dead, I can't wait to see what he's going to do to the Romans. And so they were following him the two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. They were part of the crowd. They were following. But then there were others who were in front, and apparently there were those who had already arrived in Jerusalem for the feast, and they came out to meet him, and then they would return with him they too had been impressed and had heard about the miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus. John 12, 18 helps us here regarding the composition of this crowd when it says, uh, for this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So you had people following him from Bethany and people who had come out from the city met him and returned with him to the city. That was the crowd that gave him this acclaim. What was the visible demonstration of the crowd's homage to Jesus? Well, it begins with the disciples. Verse 7 says, when they brought the colt to Jesus, they put their own coats on him, on the, on the donkey. It didn't have a saddle, and to make Jesus ride more comfortable, they began the homage by putting their own coats on the donkey. And then the crowd follows by taking their coats and strewing them, as the Greek word has it, strewing them on the road along with leafy branches to make to carpet a path for Jesus. And then there was this verbal demonstration of the homage of the crowd. As we read, they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Psalms 113 to 118 are, are known as the Hallel or Praise Psalms. And these were the psalms that the people chanted as they were on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover and for other feasts. And this particular chant is taken from Psalm one eighteen twenty five 25 to 28. One Jewish commentator, Alfred Edersheim, says that this was chanted in an antiphonal way. So you have people coming out. It's like a responsive reading. People coming out, chanting one part, the people coming in, chanting uh, the other part. Psalm 118, 25 to 28 reads like this. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give you, I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. And so they were crying out, Hosanna. As Mark has already indicated, this means save, we pray, or save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed mean praise is the one coming in the name of the Lord. As it applied to the pilgrims, they were blessed because they were doing what God had uh, commanded them to do. But this praise goes beyond what they would have given to the average pilgrim, because they go on to say, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They didn't say that about regular pilgrims coming in to Jerusalem, but they say that about Jesus. They recognize that there is something about Jesus that he is going to bring in the Davidic kingdom. He is going to be a new king. Hosanna in the highest. Praise to God who dwells in the highest heaven. That was their verbal homage to Jesus. How do we understand it? On the one hand, some of these words were used to welcome the typical pilgrim. But like I said, the words used here are going beyond that. They're associating Jesus with with David, the kingdom of David. This one is going to come and restore the Davidic kingdom as a king. And surely for the regular pilgrims, they didn't spread out their garments as they did for Jesus. So clearly, they recognize that this Jesus is someone special. He's a deliverer. He's going to bring in the kingdom of David. But what was deficient in their worship, in their adoration? Well, remember, it was the Passover time. And the Passover would remind them of their bondage in Egypt. And how God freed them, passed over them, and freed them, sprang them from Egyptian bondage. Well, now they're in bondage to another heathen nation, the Romans. So again, they would have on their minds, we want to deliver from Rome. We don't want to be under the thumb of these heathens anymore. And they were seeing Jesus as that kind of deliverer. They had seen his miracles, including his raising of Lazarus. And they thought, we need that power to deliver us from Rome. And so in their minds, their hopes were filled with a national restoration, or revival of, of an earthly kingdom. Now, were they right in giving this praise to Jesus? Absolutely. To say, save now, that was right to say, because he was the one who would save. He was David's greater son. So in one sense, their praise of Jesus was fitting, but in another sense, it was unwitting because they didn't really understand what kind of a savior, what kind of a king and what kind of a kingdom he was bringing in. This is Sunday. By Thursday, the same crowd adoring him and praising him would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Let's look briefly at verse 11. The examination of the temple by Jesus upon his entry. So Jesus enters Jerusalem, comes into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left at, for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. So he comes into Jerusalem and he goes right away to the temple. Now, did he go as a tourist? I don't think so. If you come to Philadelphia, you want to see what? Independence Hall, the Liberty Bell. If you come to New York, what are you going to want to see? I want to see the Empire State Building. I want to see the Statue of Liberty. You come as a tourist. Jesus wasn't coming to Jerusalem as a tourist. He was coming to check out the temple to see what was going on there in preparation for what he would do the very next day. He came to the temple because it was his temple. It was his father's house. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, said the Lord of hosts. It was his temple and he was coming to check out what was going on there because of what he was going to do the next day when he returned to Jerusalem. But it was not the time. It was late. His enemies were hunting for him. One commentator says it was the calm before the storm. I want to make two quick applications before we come to the Lord's table. I think we see in this passage a tragedy and a triumph. Anticipating what's going to happen a few days later when they cry, crucify him. That's the tragedy. The tragedy is the tragedy of human fickleness. How short-lived was their praise. How shallow was their praise. It would soon turn to cries for his execution. The lesson for us, brothers and sisters, don't ultimately put your trust in people and don't ultimately seek favor from them, but rather we need to seek favor and praise from the totally trustworthy God. J.C. Ryle says, nothing in truth is so fickle and uncertain as popularity. It is here today and gone tomorrow. It is a sandy foundation and sure to fail those who build upon it. Let us not care for it. Let us seek the favor of him who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, brothers and sisters, we all have something of the fear of man left in us, don't we? We all desire to please other people too much. And I commend to you that one of the measures of our growth in grace are becoming more like Jesus is when the praises of people that we receive puff us up less than they used to. And when the unjust rejections and criticisms of people come to us, they deflate us less than they used to. We all need encouragement, don't we? We need encouragement from each other. We should give a lot of encouragement, affirmation to one another to stay on the course. We all need correction because we're all sinners. Exhort one another daily, our text in Hebrews 3, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But our growth in grace, one of the ways to measure it is when I care a lot more about what God thinks about me and what he knows about me than what other people think. The Apostle Paul could say to the Corinthians, it is a very small thing that I be judged by you or by any human court. It is the Lord who judges me. I appreciate encouragement, don't you? I appreciate legitimate praise if I've served someone well. But growth and grace were measured by that doesn't mean nearly so much as knowing I have the smile of God upon me. I want to welcome criticism, but ultimately... I want the Lord to be the Lord of my conscience. And if the Lord doesn't convict me, I don't want to be convicted by someone who's trying to guilt me unjustly. And so we all need to grow out of the fear of man and being people pleasers because man is so fickle. They loved Jesus on Sunday and they called for his death a few days later. So there's a tragedy in this narrative, but there's a true triumph in his entry. The celebrated triumph was not the triumph they were expecting and desiring. He didn't come in to conquer the Romans. That was not the conquest. That was not the triumph. What was it? It was a triumph of the love of Christ for sinners. It was a triumph of the love of Christ for you and me. Did Jesus know That the crowd's praise was shallow and hollow and would be short-lived? And that in a few days they'd be crying for his execution? Of course he knew that. Did it pain him? I submit that as a man, as a full human, it did. What would you think? People crying out for your death as though you, you were a wicked person. But did it deter him? Not in the least. Whatever their agenda for him, he had his agenda from his father and he was determined to carry it out. That destination being death, even death on a cross for the sins of his people. Does Jesus know that by coming into the city in a prominent way, he's riding when everybody else is walking. And by evoking the public adoration of the multitudes, that it would create greater aggravation in his enemies And they would plot to kill him. Of course he knew it. That's why he came. He came to provoke it. Why is he doing what he is doing? Because the time for withdrawing and hiding is over. It is a time to finish the work his father had given him to do. It was a time for him to ride right into the jaws of suffering and death and put himself within reach of those who would inflict that suffering and why did he do it let's let the scriptures answer in his high priestly prayer in john seventeen nine, he says for their sakes that's you and me i sanctify myself i set myself apart for this mission for this suffering for this death for their sakes i sanctify myself that they themselves, that's us, may be sanctified in truth, that we might be set apart for God. Let's let 2 Corinthians 5.21 answer. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Double imputation. He takes our sin and suffers horribly for it so that we have nothing but the smile of God viewing us as perfectly righteous in Jesus Christ. And let's let 2 Corinthians 8, 9 answer. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was rich with the adulation of the angels of heaven, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. It was a triumph, not the triumph they wanted, but it was a triumph of the love of Christ for sinners, a triumph of the love of Christ for you if you're a believer and for me let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you who so often hid yourself, protected yourself. When your hour came, you rode into the jaws of suffering and death to carry out your father's will. And you did it for our sake. That we might be blessed with the forgiveness of all of our sins, fellowship with the living God in an endless life of joy in your presence and one another.